Thanks very much. Just ask you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. We'll read from verse 29. I was actually going to say something, make a comment about the, the modelling, but then I thought, well, I better not do that because that could get me in a dangerous place. So I'm not going to say a word. I just hope you have a lovely night, ladies. Uh, also, you know, just thinking we brought our offering, just how appreciative we are of all God's people who bring their offering week by week. And those who give through bank, etc., knows a lot of that goes on, how appreciative we are and how much we appreciate the trust we place in those who manage the church finances on our behalf. I was thinking about that, and then I was thinking, I just heard today that it's, it's Richard White's birthday, and he's 19. <laughs> now, I really trust Richard, and I just want to say that he's looking very well for it, that's why. I mean, for 19, he's looking quite remarkable. I think we'd all agree, so that's... Um, Good news, that makes Arlene 21, in case you want to know. And we never tell lies. Okay, right, so Judges chapter 11 from verse 29. We read a bit about the story of Jeff the last time. We're going to continue with that now. And we're told in verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, he crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Aroa to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel-Karim. Thus Israel subdued Amnon. When Jephthah returned, home to his, returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched, because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that every year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Just going to come and pray. Father, we just come to you and come before your word. And Lord, again, we come in submission to that word. And we ask now that by the power of your Spirit, you'll give us understanding. And you'll help us to see how even a word like this can apply to our lives. And we pray this now 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking in the main, not only, but certainly in the main, at the problem of ignorance. And this is a problem, ignorance, our lack sometimes of understanding, our lack of knowledge, that at times has results that are funny. Like, for instance, the story of Dr. Henry Ward Beecher, who prior to the emancipation of slaves in the United States, once preached in the circumstances what was a controversial sermon against slavery. Two days later, he received a letter which consisted of a single word written in capitals, FOOL. Dr. Beecher later commented on this letter, said, I have known many instances of a man writing a letter and forgetting to sign his name. But this is the first case I've ever known of a man signing his name and forgetting to send the letter. And if you ever want a, a living example of the funny side of ignorance, then try and get a ringside view of me trying to do something practical. It doesn't happen often, but it is funny and it is worth seeing. But though the results of ignorance are sometimes funny, yet at other times, they're most certainly not, as is the case here in the story of Jephthah. And just to recap, because it was before Christmas that we looked at this, the last time we were in Judges, we looked together at the, the sequence of events that the Lord used to get Jephthah into, to equip him for the ministry that was God's plan for his life. And briefly, there were three distinct phases in this. First, rejection. As Jephthah was rejected by his family, by his godless family, and he was sent to the wilderness, the wasteland, to the backwater of Tob. However, it was there in Tob as he became the, the natural leader of basically the band of outlaws that ruled that territory. It was there that he was able to develop and to sharpen the skills that later were to be so important to him. There then it was that stage two took place. There that he was prepared prepared in terms of his skills in warfare, in leadership, in man management, and also in his relationship with his God for the future ministry that God had for him. And finally, the third and final stage is that all of this was fulfilled. Fulfilled as Jephthah became the general and the chief among his people. And in this role, achieving great things for God and great things for the people of God. However, in the midst of, of all of this, Jephthah laid up great problems for himself in one vow that he hastily made. And that is before going out to fight the Ammonites, he vowed to the Lord, verse 30, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. The tragedy is that the one who ran out to Jephthah on his return, overjoyed at her father's victory, overjoyed that he was returning to her, to her, her unhurt, was his daughter, his one and only beloved, precious daughter. 
Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child, except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. And we stand aghast, don't we? At the thought of a man who could make such a terrible vow as this, and perhaps even more, at the thought of a God who could hold him to it. So how can we understand this then? How can we make anything of it? Well, let's try by concentrating our attention on Jephthah's actions here. And what I want to begin by by saying to you regarding these, and I don't think it will be too much of a surprise to you, is that he got a lot of things wrong. Yes, Jephthah here got an awful lot of things wrong. And in order to help you understand just what Jephthah got wrong and and why he got these things wrong, well, let's begin by clarifying, first of all, just what a vow is and just exactly what Jephthah was vowing here. And a simple definition that I found that it seems to me kind of encapsulates, gathers together the essence of what a, a vow is, is that basically a vow was a promise to God to acknowledge publicly an answer to prayer. And Moses in in Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23, gives these instructions about vows. He says, if you make a promise, a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. So a vow then is a purely voluntary act. But once a vow is made, a man or a woman is committed before God. And for that that reason, clear warning is given in the Bible against making vows rashly or thoughtlessly. For example, in Proverbs 20, verse 25, it is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. And Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 and 5 says, When you make a vow to God, Do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. But what exactly was Jephthah vowing here? What actually was his intention as he made this vow? Well, I believe that there can be no doubt that what he vowed, his intention was to make a human sacrifice as an offering to the Lord in return for that victory over his enemies. Now, that's made clear in a number of different ways here, but just to select two. Animals were not customarily kept indoors and certainly were not kept indoors in a substantial house such as Jephthah's undoubtedly would have been. So whatever came out of his house was almost bound to have been 
a human being, though undoubtedly Jephthah was expecting it to be a servant or a slave kind of rushing out to minister to him on his return rather than his own beloved daughter. And also besides this, if Jephthah had maybe been thinking of an animal sacrifice, well, he would never have spoken of giving the Lord just whatever came wandering out. Not in any circumstances and certainly not as a special thank offering for victory. Well, the Lord would always have had the best, would have had the first fruits, the most choice of his animals, of all his hearts. So Jephthah's vow then was a vow of human sacrifice. As far as he was concerned, that vow went terribly wrong. But that was the vow that he made. Now, now what's interesting, though, and hugely significant, is that this stands in total contradiction to the clear command already given in a number of different places by the Lord. For example, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, it says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So why then? Why did Jephthah do this? Why did he vow to do something to please God that was in fact abhorrent to God? Well, I would suggest to you just to begin because he had a a misunderstanding of the nature of God. You see, he thought that his God was a God who could be bribed. He thought he was a God who he could bargain with. That he was a God who he could promise something to him by doing that, whose arm he could twist up his back and then who could be manipulated and maneuvered and had to be before he could be trusted to give Jephthah what he wanted. But you see how different, how different a picture this is to that which the Bible presents to us of our God. And that is of our God as the, the sovereign Lord, as the God who knows all things, and the God who has the power to do whatever he wills, and the God who, because he loves his people, will always, if they're walking in a faith relationship with him, if they have a true living relationship of obedience with him, who will always do that which is right and that which is best, not always maybe, what in their short-sightedness, what they want, but always what is right and best for them. Jephthah, though, didn't seem to see this. He had misunderstood the nature of God, and because of this, he made this terrible, horrendous mistake. But you see, underlying all this, the fundamental reason why Jephthah made this mistake, his basic problem that led to this, was that it seems he was ignorant of God's word. Because as, as we've just said, all the teaching was there in the word of God to show him that this vow was so wrong and so Unnecessary. In a sense, it was understandable that Jephthah was ignorant of God's word because, as we've already established, 
He was brought up in a family where it doesn't seem that God's word was honored in any way. And also he'd been brought up at a time when Israel as, as a nation, as a people, had by and large turned away from the Lord and his word. But still, ignorance was his problem. Ignorance of God's word, ignorance of God's truth. But you see, what, what I think is so important that we take note of is it's just actually what this ignorance here meant. And what it meant is that all of Jephthah's zeal for the Lord, which he undoubtedly had, all his enthusiasm and commitment, all of his love that burned in his heart for his God that was so good, all of this was turned against him, twisted and used then to push him into doing something unwillingly that was actually the most terrible, awful sin imaginable. Now, see, I want to tell you, I believe this is so relevant to the church of today. For a number of years ago now, I listened to some teaching by Peter Fenwick, who was then a leader in the, the Sheffield House Church movement, and someone who'd been a pretty prominent figure in, in the charismatic renewal circles then around the UK. And he was reviewing trends then for the past 30 to 35 years, probably maybe from the 1960s up to the late 1990s. And I agreed with much of what he said and I had at that point and continue to share similar points at times when, when I'm preaching and sharing from God's word. But one particular point he made then I think relates so, so clearly to what we're looking at here today. And that is the importance of God's word. The importance of understanding of God's word has steadily been undermined in the church over recent decades. It has. Now, now Peter Finnick wasn't in nostalgia looking back to the good old days because he was a man who'd been involved in many of the changes in church life. And, and he believed, and I'm sure still does, that many of these things have brought great benefits to the church. And nor is he pointing the finger at other people. He acknowledges that he's been involved and he's ready to take his share of the blame. But what he does say is that due to a point in the past, things like personal daily Bible study and perhaps in more recent times, the importance of Bible teaching, of exposition, of opening up, exposing the Word of God, because these things have been seen, are seen, as part of a, an old-fashioned legalism. I tell you they're not, but they've been rolled into this. Because they've been seen as part of that, though, with what we really need being said to be a here and now revelation from God by the Spirit of God, that what we really need in the church is an experience of God. What we need is some excitement here and now rather than Bible study or teaching, which involves things like concentration and discipline and obedience and hard work which our society doesn't value and writes off as boring. You know, I believe actually what we, we really need and should be aiming for is both that experience and the teaching. But you see, because of this, the level of knowledge and understanding among Christians today, generally, is at a very low ebb. And this does leave us in a very, very dangerous place. 
Because Christians who have limited knowledge, limited understanding of the truth of God, of basic Christian doctrine, basic Christian teaching, can so easily be deceived or, as here, their zeal can so easily be distorted and twisted. Now I want to hold my hand up here and say that maybe for somebody like me, Bible teaching and Bible understanding can maybe become at times the be-all and, and end-all. And I know there is more to Christian faith. And perhaps there's things I've got to learn to open up to and discover. But at the same time, I want to say clearly, if the understanding of Scripture and so of the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, if this is not at the heart of all that we do and all that we are, if this Word of God is not the plumb line by which we measure all other things, then I tell you, we are in a dangerous place. But look at what happened to Jephthah. Look at what happened to his daughter here because of his ignorance and her ignorance. I mean, in one sense, it's a beautiful picture here of obedience and submission that for the sake of her father's honor, but much more for the sake of God's honor, that she was ready to give up her life in this kind of way. But it was all so tragically unnecessary. It was all so tragically wrong. In fact, you know, if they'd known God's word, leave out the fact that this was a vow that should never have been made and, and leave out the fact that as a vow abhorrent to God, he would in no way have held Jephthah to this. But leave all of that out. And there's still an escape clause in God's word. For in Leviticus 27, we find instructions given there about how to redeem people who'd taken special vows to dedicate themselves to the Lord. Now, what basically they'd done was in the heat of the moment, they'd said, Lord, if, if you answer this prayer or that prayer, then my son or my daughter are going to be a slave for you in the temple for X number of years. But you see, the Lord recognized that these kind of vows might be made by some people rashly. And so rather than forcing his people to endure an unbearable, an unbearable burden that they might be tempted perhaps to renege on, Rather than that, what God did was he established a sliding scale of payments that would make it possible, once they paid that amount, for them to be released from their vow. A sliding scale of payments fixed at a level that people could manage, but at a stiff enough level to discourage flippant vow-making. You can read about that in Leviticus Chapter 27. But you see, this teaching, though not strictly written for this purpose, yet still it could have been used by Jephthah to redeem his daughter. If only he'd not been ignorant of God's word. But Jephthah was ignorant. And so despite his love for God, despite his undoubted commitment to the Lord, so despite that, Jephthah got an awful lot of things wrong that led to disaster in his life. But he also, and this is what we're going to finish briefly by looking at, he also got one thing right. 
And that is he did realize the importance of a vow, of a promise made to God. And the question I want to ask is, do we? Do we realize this? I really hope that we do, but let's think this through. When we become Christians, we make the most important promise a man or a woman can ever make. We promise to seek to follow Jesus Christ. We promise to be his disciples, that is to walk in his footsteps, to endeavor to make his priorities our priorities. So what were Jesus' priorities? What should our priorities be as we are living with him as our Lord, seeking to live with our hearts full of him and full of his love? Well, you know, if you look at Jesus' life, Jesus loved the world, didn't he? He did. He came to save the world. He so identified with this world that he, the living God, became a man. And as a man, particularly, he got alongside the poor and the needy, the suffering and the hurting of our world. Well, here's the question. Do we? Do we identify with our world? Do we identify with the need of this world? Do we identify with the poor and the hurting? We could do better, couldn't we? I know we want to. But let me tell you, actually, we have to. If we are going to keep the vow we made when we came to Christ and put our trust in him. We have to. And Jesus loved the church as well, didn't he? Yes, Jesus loved and he was totally committed. He is totally committed to that group of people who out from the world who've answered his call and put their faith in him. He's totally committed to his church. Well, I ask you, are we? Am I? Are you? Are we committed to the church? Are we following as we should in the footsteps of our Lord? Are we committed to his church, to our church? And not just in terms of being there when the church gathers together, though we should be. That's the very baseline of commitment. We should be there when the church worships. We should be there when the church prays. That's a promise we make to God when we become Christians and certainly when we commit ourselves to the church. But not just that. Are we committed to the church, to the Lord, to the world in terms of serving, in terms of looking for ways that we can minister and serve in God's church, in God's world, for God's glory? Maybe though we're among those who think that that what goes on in the, the local church in terms of my commitment to it, this really doesn't matter all all that much. As long as I'm a member by faith of his universal church, that is the church around the world, down through the ages, down through history, then that's what really matters. And my involvement with the local church, in comparison to that, doesn't really matter at all. So you see, if things don't suit me, if I've got other priorities, if I've got other things to do, or maybe if there are people who are there, people at church that I find a bit difficult, then I'll just stand back 
I'll stay away. And what's the problem with that? What's the problem? Well, here's the problem. Here it is. That kind of attitude has got absolutely nothing to do with New Testament discipleship. And it's got everything to do with the selfish individualism of this age of our world. If I ask you, where's the, super, where's the mutual submission in that? Where's the fellowship in that? Where's the sacrificial love in that? Where's the obedient servant heart of God? Where is it in that? Now that attitude is a recipe for the church's continuing fragmentation, continuing to break apart. It's a recipe for anarchy and chaos and disorder, exactly as it was in the days of the judges. For remember again the familiar refrain that we come up against again and again and again in Judges. That every man then did what was right in their own eyes. And you see, this idea that the local church doesn't really matter, that it's relatively unimportant, that really is unbiblical nonsense. It's nonsense. For you see, in the Bible, the church the worldwide eternal church and the here and now local church here, say, in Hamilton, in the Bible, these aren't two separate things. Rather, they are two different expressions of the one same glorious reality. So I say today, let's learn from the lessons of Jephthah. There were a lot of things he got wrong. So let's learn from his mistakes. But he did get one thing right. He realized the importance of a promise made to God. And let's make sure that we get that right as well. Let's make sure that we live out our Christian commitment. If we've made that commitment, let's make sure we live it out all the way and in every single area of our life. That that transformation shows in every part of our lives. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the lessons we learn from your word and the lessons we learn from your people. The lessons we learn from the, the great things that we see your people do, but also the lessons we can learn from the terrible mistakes that sometimes they made. And Lord, from this, help us today to be a better people for you. And this we pray now in Jesus' name.